Luke chapter 16 will be the focus of our attention today. So if you have a Bible with you, you've got a device that's got a Bible app on it or whatever that might look like for you, if you can find your way to Luke chapter 16, it will be edifying for us to join together here in just a few moments. But to start out, I just want to tell you about a guy I heard about who was hired for a first-time sort of management position with this company. He'd never managed before. But as he began this new role, he had a little bit of an advantageous circumstance in that the manager that was his predecessor was still there for another week. So the manager stayed on for a week, and he kind of helped him to get a claim to the new position until after that week had passed, and then that former manager left the company. But right before he left, he had a little bit of advice to give to this incoming new manager, And so he he told them, he said, if you look in your top drawer, you'll see that there are three envelopes in there, and they're numbered in sequential order, one, two, three. And he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, when you find yourself in a crisis that you can't solve here at this company, what you need to do is you need to reach in and grab the next envelope and open it up and do what it says. Then you'll find success in this company. Well, sure enough, four months into the job, there was this major shakeup in the new manager's department. Everything seemed to be going wrong. He was really catching some heat from the upper executives to explain those problems. And then he remembered his predecessor's words. And so he went into his top drawer. He pulled out that first envelope and he opened it up. Inside, he found a message that said, blame your predecessor. So he thought to himself, well, that's a pretty generous sort of thing for him him to be willing to take the heat for me, even though he doesn't work here anymore. So so he did that. He blamed his predecessor, and that got him off the hook, at least for a little while. Well, about six months later, the department this guy was managing experienced a deep dip in its sales after some of the products were revealed to have some pretty deep-seated problems. Well, the manager rushed to his top drawer, he grabbed out that second envelope, and he opened it, and and the simple message that was written inside was, reorganize. And so he did that, And, and he reorganized the department, he put some new organization in place and some new folks to overlook the quality of things, and sure enough, things were ironed out, and the sales in his department rebounded. Well, just a few months later, this same manager encountered one more crisis, And so he reached in confidence into that top drawer to bring out that third envelope so that he might see this last little bit of seasoned management advice. And as he opened it up inside, he saw a simple message that began, prepare three envelopes for your successor. And sometimes the reality is that we can learn good lessons even from bad management. In my technology career, I've worked for many different managers at many different levels. I've worked for some really great managers, and I've also worked for some doozies, if you know what I mean. But I will say that I've learned some good lessons from all of them in one way or another. Even in those who are functioning kind of as the doozies, those who are the, the, the worst of the management type, there are some characteristics or there are some, some passions, there are some qualities that I could pick up on that I could see would be efficient in ways that they would do things beyond even what I would consider doing starting out, but that I still would appreciate at the end of the day. 
Well, in today's passage, we're, we're kind of on the heels of that series through the parable of the prodigal son that we called God's Lost and Found. And today, Jesus turns us into yet another parable. And this parable that Jesus gives us is one in which he reveals one of those doozies of a manager, one of those bad managers. This manager is bad, and not only has he squandered his employer's possessions, but when that is found out, this bad manager turns this whole opportunity into an embezzlement scheme on his way out the door as he seeks to prepare for his future. He is dishonest and untrustworthy and conniving and self-serving. And none of that is what you're looking for if you're looking for someone to manage a department or to manage a company faithfully. And yet, when, when this bad manager is done with all of his trickery, when, when he's done with all of this stuff that we say, well, why on earth would you, would you do those things? That's so wrong. The shocking thing to us that we find in this passage is that Jesus uses this bad manager to illustrate how his followers ought to be using the resources that are available to them as they prepare for eternity. And Jesus is teaching us how we should be managing our finances, managing our possessions, how we should be managing our wealth in the parable that's before us here today. Now, you might not consider yourself to be a very wealthy sort of person. So, like, when you hear the term managing my wealth, you think, ha, yeah, I like, I like I'll ever have any of that. But whether your storehouses are full of grain or if you've just got a couple of coins, God, through his word, has some very clear instructions for how all of us ought to be managing our wealth, whether great or small. In fact, Jesus, through the Bible, has revealed to us about 40 different parables. All right, if we kind of total them up, there's about 40 parables that Jesus gave that are revealed for us in the gospel accounts and and if we tally those up we find that actually about a third of those parables deal with money deal with finances deal with managing our wealth in one way or another and you may be surprised to learn that the topic of money or the topic of wealth is that it's a topic that Jesus spoke about very frequently in fact he talked more about money than he did about heaven or hell now you might think that prayer would be a more important topic than money but while there are about 500 verses that deal with prayer in the bible there are over 2500 verses that deal with money and our money management of money so when you read the four gospels one out of every 10 verses you come to talks about how we manage our money how we manage our wealth and you know Why would God go through all of this trouble in his living and written word to focus so much attention on money? That might be the question that we're prone to ask. But if we're honest, what we're going to to confess is that that's where a lot of our attention goes as well. God is focusing, God is honing in on that, which is one of the chief competitors of our own hearts when he calls us to wisely steward the finances that he grants to us. 
That's where a lot of our attention goes. Many of us spend the idle cycles of our day thinking about money and wealth, what we should do with it, how we can attain it, how we can preserve it once we've got it, and so on and so forth. But in today's passage, we're going to find some good lessons from bad management that will help us to direct those idle cycles which our minds are on our money and our money is on our minds. Open God's word with me and and let's see these good lessons from bad management in action as we turn to Luke chapter 16 starting in verse 1. If I ask if you're able, let's stand together that we might honor the reading of God's word. Now he was also saying to the disciples, that is Jesus is speaking to his disciples, here's what he says. There was a rich man who had a manager and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, One hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager, because he had acted shrewdly. Then Jesus turns to the application here. He says, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in their relation to their own kind than than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is righteous in a very little thing, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now let's just take a moment to to unpack this parable a little bit before we pull out a few applications from that parable. And we'll begin here by talking about the characters of this parable. Those are the ones that appear to us first. In verse 1, Jesus introduces these two characters and the situation of tension between the two of them. But he describes one of them as a rich man. And how rich is he? Well, he's so rich that he's able to hire a manager to run his estate. Because that's what this man uh, that Jesus introduces us to in verse 1 does. He's, he's hired a rich manager. Or he's had a, hired a manager. And this rich man had that manager. And in the time of Jesus' coming, the, kind of the way things would work is, is that rich people 
would, would often hire free men who would then serve them as managers and would manage all of their financial affairs. Now, a manager in this sort of capacity had a pretty high social standing. He was entrusted with a really great responsibility. In fact, the word that the New American Standard Bible translates manager, or, or your translation might say steward, comes from a combination of two Greek words. One, one of those words is house, and the other means manager. And so ultimately, this individual is, is sort of managing his, his master's entire house. He's managing his master's dwelling, but that would also extend to all of his master's business transactions as well. And so this individual did not own the house. He was only a manager. He only managed the house. He was a steward of his master's resources, which were given into his control so that he might represent his master in business transactions Ultimately, at his own discretion, he had liberty to kind of set up those transactions in this role. He was given full authority to deal with both debtors and creditors. And it was the manager's job to manage the assets of his master as as effectively as possible. Now, of course, if you're a master, if you're the rich man in this sort of situation, you're going to want some good return on your investment. You're going to want someone to function in that capacity who's managing well. And, and that's what this master expects of his servant as he manages his corporation. But the, but the next thing we realize is the tension that exists between these two characters, the rich man and his manager. The tension we find in verse 1 is that the manager has had this report relayed to him that his employer, or, or, or the rich man has had this report that the, the manager of his has squandered his possessions. Someone had accused this this manager of wasteful management. And apparently there's there's enough evidence in this accusation that the rich man decides to take action against this manager. And, And in fact, the word that describes how this manager has squandered his master's wealth is the same word that we talked about. Remember when we talked about in the parable of the prodigal son, that word prodigal could also be translated as squandering and in fact it is in the new american standard bible it's the exact same word so now we've moved from the prodigal son to what is in essence the prodigal manager the squandering manager the manager who is not faithfully taking care of those things which have been relayed to him it's a word that we refers to wasteful and careless handling of an individual's resources and jesus doesn't really tell us how this manager had squandered his employer's possessions. You know, maybe maybe he opened the attachment to a bogus e- email for weed enhancement and, and he ended up taking down the whole network. I, you know, m- maybe he took a sling and, and he hurled a rock at the, at the company printer when it wouldn't print correctly. Or, or maybe, you know, he was riding the, the company camel out on personal business. We're not really told... What this manager does incorrectly, we can only surmise that some combination of his incompetence or his dishonesty has earned this manager a bad reputation that is now being relayed through someone else to his employer. 
And so now we've moved, in essence, from the prodigal son to the prodigal manager. And, and this leads us to the repercussions of what the, the owner, the rich man, has heard about his manager. The manager is called to his master in order to give an account. And verse 2 reveals that the master called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. That is, he's in the process of terminating this manager's employment. But first, this rich man kind of has to get the books from his manager. I mean, everything's been entrusted to his care. He's been the one keeping up with all the debts, with all the expenses, with all those who owe. And so the rich man's got to get an accounting of those things before he can pick up and assign those duties to someone else. So he demands an inventory of his goods and an audit of his books. And this manager is, in essence, given his own two-week notice to kind of work out the accounting that remains in his job as he's on his way out the door as he's being fired. Now, most places where I've worked, you just don't allow someone who is being fired some window of time to transition away from the company. Because usually when you're fired, someone brings you a box and they let you pack your things and then they escort you out the door and take away your key and take away your security badge so you can't get back into the place. I was working in my company office a few years ago when the owner of the company came into town, which is not something that happened that often. But then he walked into our vice president's office and as the day went on a little bit longer, I, I noticed that on our community communications application that my manager, his account suddenly, suddenly showed unavailable. And so I, I sent that over to my manager and said, you know, this, this looks a little bit suspicious. And sure enough, the next day, we got the email that said that that vice president had chosen to pursue other opportunities. His account had been deleted because that's the way things tend to go when you're firing someone. You're not going to give them the opportunity to cause harm and damage in a company when you are letting them go. And so this rich man was not following good business practices. Instead, he allows his manager to continue managing for a short amount of time as he's heading out the door. And the manager saw his window of opportunity. He knew the gig was up. He started to think about what was next. And verse 3 takes us into his mind where we see him actually struggling internally, thinking about what am I going to do going forward? And so he says to himself there in verse 3, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? He knows he's not going to get another white-collar sort of job with, with this squandering manager uh, experience listed on his resume but he doesn't want to revert to, to blue collar work which is kind of the first thing that comes to his mind as he decides I'm not strong enough to dig the text tells us and that's probably not true Matthew Henry once wrote it does not appear that he is either old or lame but the truth is he is lazy he cannot his cannot is a will not it is not a natural but a moral disability that he labors under Likewise, this man in his inner thoughts thinks about the, the prospect of maybe going below that and begging for those things, which he would need going forward. But he's too prideful to beg. 
But then he has this kind of eureka moment where he suddenly thinks of this plan that will prepare for his future. So what we find next are the shrewd preparations of this manager. Jesus clearly tells us in verse 8 that this man is unrighteous. But we should note that even in his unrighteousness, he is resourceful. In verse 4, he says to himself, I know what I shall do. And then he reveals what he's gunning for with the, the little window of opportunity that's left to him. What he's about to do, he is doing so that when he is removed from management, people will welcome him into their homes. Now keep that in mind because that's an important sort of phrase. That, that's something important that Jesus wants us to cling on to as he kind of ties this into an eternal perspective for you and me. This idea of having individuals who will welcome you into their homes in the next phase that you're entering into. How is the man going to earn favor with others? How will he be welcomed by people into their homes? Well, the plan that he hatches is carried out in verses 5 through 7 as this manager calls each one of his master's debtors. And we're not told how many debtors this master has. We only see two of them who are revealed here, but we know that he calls each one of them, which probably means there were many that were treated. And we just kind of get a little sampling, a little vision into just a couple of those encounters as these individuals come before the manager who owed the rich man money. The first one appears at the end of verse 5 with the manager asking, How much do you owe my master? That is, he's confirming the debtor's unpaid debt to his master. And the first debtor says, A hundred measures of oil. Now, now, a measure of oil, you should know, was about eight gallons. In fact, a hundred measures of oil would, would be about 875 gallons of olive oil. That would be worth about a thousand denarii. And we know from other parables that Jesus gives to us that a denarius, that one of those denarii, would be about one day's labor for a day laborer. That's a pretty big debt. We're talking about a thousand days worth of day labor. But this shrewd manager, he's looking to build a good reputation with his master's debtors. He's looking to prepare a way that he's going to be welcomed into homes when he leaves this situation, when the management is taken away from him. He wants to be on the good side of those whom he may soon have to turn to for room and board. And so he says in verse 6, take your bill and sit down and write 50. Right, right there where you said that you had 100, mark that out, write 50. That is, he cut this debtor's debt in half. He essentially freed up funds for a year and a half of labor. Well, then another debtor arrives in verse 7, and his debt is even greater. He, he owes 100 measures of wheat. Now, a measure of wheat was the largest Hebrew dry measure. It represented 11 bushels, and, and the total of 100 measures of wheat would take about 100 acres to produce. He owed somewhere between 2,500 and, and 3,000 denarii, which again would represent 2,500 to 3,000 days worth of labor that needed to be repaid. That's eight to 10 years worth of labor in debt. And so though his bill is only cut down by 20% to 80 measures of wheat at this time, the, re the reduction on that bill still amounts to about a year and a half of a day laborer's wage that is given back 
to this second debtor who comes and appears before him. And what's, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is showing us a dishonest manager's acts of embezzlement on his way out the door to prepare for his own future. It's a very self-serving sort of thing that he's doing. He's robbing his master of his own riches. He's stealing from his employer to provide for himself. And in Jewish society, reciprocation is what was expected when a good deed was done for you. They had that sort of mentality of you scratch my back and I will scratch yours. We've already encountered Jesus kind of responding to that sort of mentality as we've been through the gospel of Luke. Back in Luke chapter 14, he told those who were gathered around that when you hold a banquet, invite those who cannot repay you. Don't don't just invite the individuals who will come and then will invite you to their own banquets because that was the sort of Jewish mentality at this time. If you invite me to your banquet, I'll invite you to mine. If you cut me slack for a year and a half, I'll cut you slack for a year and a half. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's the outgoing manager's mentality as he's trying to secure friends for a fortunate future. And the shock comes in verse 8, where we find the unexpected praise. We expect this rich man to do a couple of things maybe. I mean, maybe we expect him to have this this manager who's embezzled from him arrested. Uh, Maybe we expect him to to have him brought to court for trial. We we expect him to maybe have him stoned. We, We certainly expect him to go in and to wreck his LinkedIn profile. But Jesus captures our attention with the exact opposite as we find that his master praised the unrighteous manager. Because he had acted shrewdly. And then Jesus launches into this series of applications from this parable starting in the latter half of verse 8. Now now before we get into those applications, let's be careful to note here that Jesus is not commending one quality about this bad manager. He's not commending his dishonesty. Jesus is not saying go and live in a dishonest sort of way that's going to prepare for your future the way this dishonest manager did. No, he actually outright calls this manager an unrighteous manager in verse 8. What this manager has done is not honorable. It is not approved by God. It is unrighteous. In fact, as Jesus turns to the application, that's a contrast that he wants us to consider unrighteous people can be very shrewd that is they can be very crafty very resourceful very tactful in using the resources that are available to them here on this earth to provide for a worldly sort of future but here's the problem unrighteous people are more concerned about and more tactful about preparing for their worldly future than the children of God are in preparing for their heavenly future. That's what Jesus drives home as he says that this bad manager was praised because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of 
light is what Jesus says. He's drawing the contrast between the sons of this age who are investing themselves in worldly riches and those who ultimately ought to know that they're headed for eternal things who are likewise not taking the opportunity to be shrewd and preparing for eternal riches. You see the contrast here. Now Jesus is speaking this parable to his disciples according to verse 1. He's speaking this parable to those who are at least interested in following him, at least for the time being. He's speaking to those who claim to be sons of light. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, Jesus is speaking the words we're going to be looking at here to you as well. And here's what he's saying to you. Here's what he's saying to me. We're being shown up by unbelievers when it comes to how we are using our wealth to prepare for our future. Our efforts to prepare for the future that we supposedly know is coming are pathetic in comparison to what the lost world is doing to prepare for what they believe is coming. In fact, the trouble may just be that there's seldom any difference at all between how the unbeliever prepares for his future and how the believer prepares for a totally different sort of future. And Jesus wants us to take note. So let me dive into some application with five good lessons from bad management. Here's the first one. What you may treat like you own is only alone. The manager in this parable is a lot like you and me. He owned nothing, but he was put in charge of everything. Likewise, we might have been granted a great deal of liberty to use the stuff we've been granted and the way that we see fit. But friends, we must know that we do not ultimately own anything that appears to be ours. Or to say that another way, your wealth is not really yours. You're only a manager of the master's wealth. As we read in Haggai verse, chapter 2, verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The psalmist agrees in Psalm 104, verse 2, as he says, says this of God, the earth is full of your possessions. In Psalm 50, we read that God says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. And so I tell you, just, just pause for a moment and, and take a look at your purse or, or, or take out your wallet and, and take a look at that. Take a look and think of that money or that debit card or that checkbook that you got in there. Think of that house and that car and that job and that family and all of those possessions of yours. You have been granted an opportunity to manage these things, but you do not own them. In fact, like the manager who is called to account in this parable, one day, you're going to have to give an account for how you've managed your master's wealth. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 14, 12, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Why? Because we're all managers. We're all stewards of God's riches. 
Paul drives the same sort of idea home in 1 Corinthians 4, where God reveals through him these words. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And he goes on and says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God, Paul says. So the first good lesson from bad management is that what you may treat like you own is only on loan. Here's the second one. What you may hope will last will soon quickly pass. Many of us hope that we'll build up a good savings and round up some solid possessions that will last for a long time. That's the mentality that all the commercials we see, all the marketers are bombarding us with. That's the sort of mentality they want us to come away with. Take care of your future. Invest in this product because this is something that will truly last. Take care of your future by saving up for your retirement. And so we go through life and we live and we save and we strive and we save. And at 65, we quit working. And there it is. There's your retirement. And then for so many individuals... They end up passing away at 66 or 67. Or they live a few more years and they, and they hit 70. And that they can see that the sensory experience for them is not what they are used to it being. Those things they thought they were going to enjoy, they can't enjoy because their vision is not what it used to be. Or their hearing is not what it used to be. Or their taste is not what it used to be. Maybe they buy the car of their dreams and then they end up having it taken away from them because they can't drive anymore. They don't want to go on a long trip because they don't want to go through the airport lines with a walker. What a lousy deal to buy what the marketers are saying, to buy what the investment analysts would tell you to save up for your retirement. Because at best, your retirement is going to be a short-lived sort of thing. Why not invest for eternity? Are you buying this lousy deal? Are you taking the treasures that the Lord has entrusted to you and investing them in what will soon quickly pass? Notice what Jesus says here in verse 9. He says, make friends for yourselves by the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails... Jesus doesn't say if it fails. He says when it fails because it will surely fail. And friends, listen to me. What you may hope will last will soon quickly pass. One day either the money will leave you or you will leave the money. And this should cause all of us to wonder. If if what we own is really on loan, if what we hope will last soon will quickly pass, How much of what is on loan to us are we actually mismanaging? How much are we found in this parable of the bad manager? How much is that a mirror that points to us? Could it be that we're the scandalous, squandering managers, every one of us, that Jesus is calling us to consider here? How are we investing in the kingdom? How much do we mismanage the Lord's riches 
on the stuff we don't need or the stuff we don't really want, but the stuff we buy just the same. This is a timely message because, as I mentioned earlier, last Friday was Black Friday, and what's tomorrow? Cyber Monday. That's right. There have been and there will be continue to be untold numbers of advertisers who are wooing you now to invest just a little money on things that you cannot take with you. Amy and I were actually shopping on Friday morning. And we saw that there was a TV out there that was, you know, a little bit bigger than the TV we've got. I mean, the resolution, it's four times the resolution of what we've got now. And it was, you know, just a few hundred dollars. And we really thought long and hard about buying that TV. But in the end, you know, I, I thought, what's wrong with the TV I've got now? I mean, we've we got a nice big TV now. And it's never caused us any troubles. It works just fine. I mean, we can see all the programs we want to see on it. But, but as I studied for this message a little bit later, and I thought about that experience, I thought, how, how ready was I to squander the resources that the Lord has given to me on something I didn't need. And so I, re- I resolved to take those funds that we would have spent on that TV. Not, not that we just got a ton of funds that are sitting around, but we're, we're going to take the funds that we were going to spend on that TV and we're going we're gonna to give those to the Lord's causes. We're going to give those to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We're going to give those to see missionaries go around the world and share the gospel. Just a moment of conviction in my own life. If, if only just this one time I've seen the air in my ways and I've decided to invest in something that will last instead of squandering it away. Because I'm realizing the second good lesson from bad management. What you may hope will last will soon quickly pass. This leads to the third good lesson about bad management, which is though earthly wealth will fail, some treasures do prevail. There's good news in this passage. There are investments that you can make that will truly last. That's what Jesus says in verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus presents the one thing that this unfaithful manager has done right. He has used what his master has given him today to make sure that he's taken care of tomorrow. He got himself ready for the coming time when it would all be taken away. No more paychecks, no more house, no more job. He knew he would need to fall back on somebody who could help him. And so he did today what would allow him to get ready for what was coming tomorrow. And hear this good news, friends. We can use earthly riches to gain eternal rewards did you hear what jesus had just said here you can actually use your earthly money and turn it into an eternal reward now all of your life you've probably been told like i have that you can't take it with you when you go and that's true you can't take dollars you can't take stocks you can't take bonds or real estate and houses and cars and diamonds and name brand apparel with you but you know what you can do you can meet the proceeds of your investments in the world to come but 
only if you're investing in the right thing. So let me give you just a little investment tip based on what Jesus reveals to us here in this passage. The way you can invest your money in the world to come is by investing your money in what's going to be in the world to come. And do you know what's going to be there in the world to come? The only things you can invest your wealth in that are going to be in the world to come are the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And what Jesus says in verse 9 is basically this. There will be people who are going to come up to you in heaven in order to welcome you. Maybe people whom you've never even met. People whom you never even saw on this planet who are going to thank you because you've made investments in their lives and in their eternal welfare. Because when you send through your offerings, those missionaries across the globe who then see thousands of people come to Christ by sharing Jesus one-on-one, you are making an eternal investment. When you invest in God's work, you are literally making a gift that will return your investment to you. And so investing in the work of God, investing in the souls of others is the only investment which will truly last. And so the question all of us must answer then today is this. Am I going to use the stuff that won't last to win the people who will? Because you can't take your wealth with you. But you can invest it in something of value that will wait for you there. W.A. Criswell, the pastor of yesteryears, once gave the illustration of a man who put $300 in the collection plate. And when that plate passed, he said softly, I'll see you in heaven. Those people who were kind of sitting around him said, that old man is getting senile. He says he's going to see that $300 in heaven. He may meet his maker over there, but he won't certainly meet his money there. He said, now the church treasurer used some of that $300 to pay the electric bill. He gave some of it to the preacher to buy gasoline. Some of it went to ministerial students and some to the mission field. Early one morning, that man died in his sleep. On that first Lord's Day in glory, he walked down the golden streets and a young fellow came up and said, thank you, Brother John. I was cold and lonely and it was a dark night. I saw the lights of the church. Just to get out of the dark, I went in. While there, the darkness left my soul and I found Jesus. Another came to him saying, the preacher came to the filling station. As I filled his tank, he told me about Jesus and I gave my heart to the Lord. Next, he met a throng of people who said, I want to thank you for those students you helped to get trained up in the gospel. They preached that same gospel to my family and we found the Lord. Next, he met those estranged tongues who said, Thank you, brother, for sending us the gospel across the seas. And look, friends, all of us who have yielded our lives to Christ will be in heaven. He's paved the way. But we will not all be greeted by the same welcoming committee. And so I ask you once more, who's your one? Who's the person that you're investing in? You know, a few dollars that you may spend on a cup of coffee or or on a pie that you can take by might be kingdom investments that you are storing up riches that will last eternally through. If those become opportunities through which you're intentionally striving to share the gospel. 
And Jesus has a passion for the one. Our God has a passion for the one. We've seen it over and over again. In the way that Jesus, in the midst of a busy ministry where he's healing thousands of people, would stop to deal with just one. In, in the way that he would, he would, even in the midst of the masses, teach that there's a shepherd who goes and leaves the 99 behind to go after the one. And the woman who scours her house, leaving the nine coins so that she can find the one. And the father who goes searching for his son, leaving the other behind so that he might find the one. God longs to have the one. And so many of us can give the testimony that we, at some point or another, have been the one that God was after and that he's used instruments like ourselves in that pursuit of tracking us down. I just ask you, who's your one? Who's the one you're praying for? Who's the one you're striving to reach as you exercise the heart of Christ? Don't squander your opportunity. Don't squander your master's riches. Because the third good lesson from bad management is that though earthly wealth will fail, some treasures do prevail. Here's the fourth one. Where little things abound, this is your proving ground. That's the heart of what Jesus says in verses 10 through 12. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And then he goes on to kind of give the inverse of that. As he says, he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. He's saying that the little things are our proving ground. If you can't be trusted with a little thing, then you certainly can't be trusted with a big thing. If you cheat on the homework, then you'll probably cheat on the test that'll lead to you cheating on the job that it earns you. If you'll steal away a pack of notepads in the entry-level position, then you'll probably steal away the funds in the executive position. And listen to me, friends. God is watching to see how you manage your earthly stuff so that he can see if he can trust you with eternal stuff. Do you know what your money is? Your money is a test. God is testing you right now to see if you, he can trust you with a little thing, that, which is money, so that he can trust you with far greater things in eternity to come. A couple of months back, I went to the recreation department down here, Madison Mayday and Rec, to sign my kids up for a, for a sporting um, they're playing soccer. So I signed them up for soccer, and in the process, I went away, and I was driving down the road. I think I ended up at Walmart, and I realized I still had the pin from that place over the top of my ear. And uh, so what I did is I loaded back up, went back across town, and I went in, and I gave the pin. And, and the lady said, well, you know, we really would not have missed that pin. You didn't have to go all that distance to bring the pin back to us. I said, I'm not going to have my reputation in the community being that pastor who steals pins from the Madison Madden rec department. Because look, the little things matter, friends. The, the little things are, are, are signs of how we deal with the big things. Where little things abound, this is your proving ground. John MacArthur really drives this point home. Here's what he has to say. The truth is circumstances don't determine faithfulness. Character does. You hear people say, if, if only I had had more to give if i had more i'd give more no you wouldn't it doesn't matter how much you have the widow who had nothing gave everything people who have everything give nothing it's never about circumstances it's a view of heaven and a view of earth it's a perspective that has captured your heart and all of that 
ties to our eternal rewards with what Jesus is showing us. Us here. All of that ties to what God is going to grant to the faithful that they might enjoy forevermore. That's the idea Jesus picks up with in verse 11 as he says, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, that is, if you failed the test by squandering the Lord's money that's been entrusted to you to manage here on earth, who will entrust true riches to you? Verse 12, And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? True riches. That which is your own. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about eternal rewards. He's pleading with us not to waste our opportunities. And so friends, let us be shrewd. Let us not waste our loans. Let us be management-minded people. Let us make the most of our brains. Let us make the most of our advantages. Let us make the most of our opportunities. Let us make the most of our wealth in order to further his kingdom and bring glory to his name. Look at our use of wealth because it is tied to our rewards. You know what that means? When God calls you to give to a gospel cause, when he calls you to give up that which is yours for the furthering of his kingdom, He is not calling you to do that so that you can become poorer. He's calling you to give so that you can become richer with riches that truly last. Do you think God is going to return you with rewards in eternity if you've squandered away his riches on Black Friday and Cyber Monday luxuries? Because we can buy ourselves endless junk and trinkets and creature comforts and earthly possessions, but in the end, they are all revealed to be shallow, corrupting, temporary things that burn up when they come into the presence of the Lord. So why not rather invest in the things of God which will last? The fourth lesson from bad management, as we've seen, is where little things abound. This is your proving ground. Here's the final one. If you try to serve two masters, you're headed for disaster. Jesus draws it all together here in verse 13 as he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Look, friends, here's the reality. Either God controls your stuff through you, or your stuff controls you. Or to say it another way, you must make the choice. Will the gold control you or will God control you? If you're so strapped for cash that you can't afford to tithe, you can't afford to give generously to the Lord's work in other avenues, you're revealing the reality that you are a slave to the wrong master. You are a slave to money. You are serving the stuff. And if truth be told, many of you are living in your master many of you are driving your master or you're wearing your master or you're depositing your master in the bank on fridays so will you start to look at your stuff the way god sees it because if you will you'll see that all of your possessions are opportunities to invest in eternal gains I mentioned earlier my giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Not something we as a church have traditionally done, but the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is an offering that's held annually around Christmas time to support 
missionaries of the Southern Baptist Convention. 100% of those proceeds go to the mission fields. No administrative fees are taken out. All of that comes from the cooperative program that we as a church already give to. But the International Mission Board is this group of individuals who are passionate about sharing the gospel to all corners of the world. I've known many IMB missionaries. I had an opportunity just a couple of weeks ago at the, at the North Carolina Baptist State Convention to talk to some of those IMB missionaries to catch a glimpse of their heart for sharing God's love, sharing the hope of the gospel with the nations. And so what I want to invite all of us to do today is something that we as a church have not traditionally done. Let me tell you how we're going to do this. When the service ends today, I've asked our ushers to stand by the doors so that you have an opportunity to give. And the gifts that you give at that time will go to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering in order to support the gospel going to the nations. Now, some of you might not be prepared to give today. If so, that's fine. On subsequent Sundays, you can fill out a little envelope, a little little note on the corner of your envelope, or you can drop a check in with a little note that says, I want these funds to go to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. But I want us to have an opportunity to live this sort of thing out. So to take a look at this video to see a little bit about what our IMB missionaries are doing. And so for the entire month of December, I'm going to open up an opportunity for us to give, and maybe you feel led to give today, but this is a a, a very appropriate sort of way for us to respond to what God is calling us to do in investing in those who will greet us in heavenly realms, into eternal dwellings, as Jesus says here. I just want to close by saying that God has ultimately taken the most of his opportunity in order to welcome you into eternal dwellings. God has sent his own son to to bear our burdens, to to live in our flesh, to walk on our side, to, to be acquainted with our griefs, to ultimately face a torture that was rightfully ours. He maximized his opportunity. He took the time which was his so that he might purchase for you a way to be forgiven, a way to be restored, a way to have eternal dwellings, a way to live with him forevermore. And I want you to know that God has made this opportunity available to you without cost. You can't buy your way into it. All you must simply do is trust in Jesus. What we're talking about here is not a way to buy your way into heaven, but just a way to enjoy the rewards therein. And I can't help but think, in light of the fact of what Jesus has done for me, when I get to heaven, there are going to be some thoughts in my mind of, man, I really squandered those opportunities to bring more glory to this one who now stands before me who is worthy of all of my praise. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about this 
idea of giving, these good lessons from bad management, this opportunity which is ours, this brief opportunity, the stewardship in which we have been entrusted with riches to invest in eternal things. But, but I wouldn't want anyone to walk away on a day like today with, without hearing the good news that Jesus has paid it all. When it comes to your unrighteousness, when it comes to that which divides you from God, when it, when it comes to that which ultimately has hindered you from good fellowship with Him, He's paid the way. He's broken down the barrier. He has died the death you deserve to die. And He offers to you life. Just as He's risen from the dead. Just as God has, has affirmed that He is His choice instrument to win you back to Himself through the resurrection, He promises to you that if you will simply trust in Him, you can enjoy the same. And so we're going to share a final song as our, as our team comes forward to lead us here in just a few moments. But I, I want to invite anyone who would be compelled to respond to this gospel message today. I, I want you to know that Jesus has shown God's love for you in such a rich way that he invites you now, no matter where you are, no matter what you've been, no matter what you've done, to come to him and to receive eternal life. So would you pray with me now? Father, these are tough lessons for a culture that we live in because we have gotten so used to buying the message that other things are important. But I just pray you'd focus our attention, focus our minds, turn our, turn our thoughts to what will truly last. God, help us to see things through a kingdom lens that knows that all of this is passing away, but there are things which endure, and you have granted those to us by your rich grace through Jesus. Father, if there are those who are here today who need that grace, if there are those who maybe failed in their management and just want an opportunity to commit themselves fresh and anew, maybe those who have never called the name of Christ, who've never yielded their lives to Him, Lord, I pray that today would be a day when you, through the power of your Spirit, would draw individuals to yourself. But as we respond in these moments, Lord, pray that you would do what only you can do as you work through us and you work in us to bring the ones back to yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.